you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. Hi, listeners. This is John Horn. I want to introduce you to a new podcast from LAS Studios. It's called Human Nature. It's a show about connecting to the natural world, no matter where you live, and rethinking what it means to live in a city disconnected from that world. Every week on Human Nature, host and naturalist Marcos Trinidad will challenge you to get out and explore. Think about it. Nature doesn't just help our physical and mental health. It also can help us find our place in the world. It happened to me when I was a little bit younger, when I spent two weeks living in fire lookouts in the forests of Idaho and Montana. Stay tuned for episode one and be sure to support LAS Studios by listening and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks. Hey, what's up? From LAS Studios, this is Human Nature. I'm Marcos Trinidad. Every week, I'll invite you to get out into the nature of your neighborhood with the help of people who see the world a little differently. Today, I'm going to have a chat with author and artist Jenny O'Dell. But before we get into that, I want to tell you a little bit about myself and why I'm making this show. I'm from Los Angeles, or if you want to be more specific, Highland Parque, a small community in Northeast LA. Growing up here, the Alley River was basically my extended backyard. It was a place I could go to hang out with my friends or just get some time alone and listen and watch. I'd see cormorants on the telephone wire, and sometimes I'd see an osprey come by and snatch up a fish. And even if I didn't realize it at that time, all of those hours spent by the Alley River, that was me learning how to connect with nature even in the middle of a very urban place. So I guess it makes sense that today I'm a conservationist. I run a nature center in Debs Park. It's around the corner from the very first home I ever lived in. And my days are spent helping other people notice that nature is all around them too. Here's the thing. I traveled all over the world to places way more nature-y than L.A., I've had the privilege to study trees in Southeast Alaska, backpack through Siberia, even spent a few years in Germany when I served in the military. And I could be working in some remote forest, but I'm not. I'm here in a city because it means I get to meet people where they're at, already in nature, even if they might not realize it. That's why I'm making this show. Because to me, the best part of being in urban nature is sharing that with my community. So this is an invitation to reclaim your attention and see yourself as part of an urban ecosystem. Starting today with someone who has written a book on how to do exactly that. I'm speaking with author and artist Jenny O'Dell. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Jenny O'Dell. I am a writer and an artist. 
I'm based in Oakland. I am a everyday birder, I guess. Sometimes I call myself an involuntary bird watcher because it used to make me late for class when I was teaching. It was like not a decision that I made. I would just kind of get stuck <laughs> looking at birds. It happens. And it's so funny that you mentioned that. It's like the, I guess I wouldn't call it a, a casualty, <laughs> but it's <laughs> it's just one thing you have to get used to anytime you're dealing with a birder or a bird watcher that if you're outside mid-conversation, everything will stop and mm -hmm. you'll follow the bird that comes in. So what is your favorite bird today? Oh, I'm so glad you said today. I feel like you understand that there is no favorite <laughs> bird, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. My favorite bird today is a Wilson's Warbler. Oh, cool. Check this out. I saw a Wilson's Warbler this morning. Oh, wow. Amazing. There's just like something about how they look that it's like impossible to remain in a bad mood if you look at one. I don't know. It's like they're just like the happiest looking bird. It looks like they have a little toupee. Right. A toupee or a little hat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, I went on a hike a while ago. We parked and I heard one right outside the car. And then I was like, I pointed at it. It was in like a tree. And I was like, look, oh my God, it's Wilson's Warbler. And then as I did that, it literally flew up and like landed on the rearview mirror and was like looking in at us. And I was like, ah, like, just, <laughs> I was not expecting that. Like, it was just one of those moments where you're like, like, I'm all like pointing to it. It's far away. And it's like, oh, you asked about me? Like, here, <laughs> let me show you what I look like. It's like on note. That's so cool. So Jenny, if you could tell us a little bit about your book, How to Do Nothing. Uh, for any of the listeners that have not read the book, give us a little snapshot of what they'll be getting into. So I think in the book, I was trying to combine two realms of thinking that I don't ordinarily see talked about together and I hadn't thought about in tandem really until writing the book. And one is at the sort of more technology side, which is the attention economy, you know, social media, advertising, media in general, things that are designed to keep and hold your attention. And then on the other side, I was thinking about ecology, you know, why I had this need to be outdoors and be around other forms of life. And at some point, you know, after the 2016 election, I, I started to link those things together. At the level of metaphor, I think that there are things in ecology that can help us understand things like the attention economy. You know, like we understand that in ecology, like a monoculture is very harmful, that complexity and nuance are good things, um, and that it's actually quite hard to define individuals in an ecology, right? Like there's many relationships, but not necessarily like bounded entities. Um, one of the things I think that was like really inspiring to me about things in ecology and birding in particular is, you know, not only the level of attention that something like birding takes, extremely minute attention, right, with, with all of your senses, but also this idea of, I think I call it difference without boundary, that you see in ecology. Like I, as a person who's biracial, like I found that very, like a nice sort of model of the self. It's true that things can be different, but it's often hard to draw like a really hard line between them. There's like always this kind of exchange back and forth. And in the book, I use the example of like an atmospheric river to talk about that, where the rain is always coming from somewhere else. The air is always coming from somewhere else. So I would say yeah, it's a strange book because it's like the first half of it is about mostly digital technology. And then the second half of the book is a lot of stuff about birds and plants. That may seem like an odd combination, but I think 
part of what drove me to write it was that I saw that there were a lot of parallels there. After the break, Jenny and I talk bush tits, bird buddies, and how nature might actually be closer than you think. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. One thing that I really appreciated you talking about is that deep listening and how you go into a space and you open these senses up and you open yourself up to observation. I know you particularly call out the Rose Garden, which I found really awesome because it's in this urban area. Can you talk about that experience you had? Yeah, so the this Rose Garden that I talk about in the book I always have to distinguish it from there's the Berkeley Rose Garden, which is also very nice. It is not the same as the Oakland Rose Garden. The Oakland Rose Garden is much more closer to like a main drag that has a lot of businesses on it. Um, So it's much more of that kind of like surprising like pocket of, I don't know, something different that's like in the midst of a very urban space, which is why I like it. I mean, it's not very big, but it's very dense. So if you sit there for any amount of time, it's like even if you're not a bird person, like you're going to notice the birds. There are a lot of hawks there, obviously lots of scrub jays being kind of obnoxious. A lot of titmice, juncos, white-crowned sparrows, just like a lot of little guys. The way it was designed, it really invites you to notice those things. Yeah. The reason why I resonated with that so much is because it was an urban space. One thing that I've really spent a lot of my time doing, especially with communities that surround me, is making sure they know that nature exists all around them, that nature is not just something you have to go to. Like, it's not something you need to get in your car to drive to. You can literally walk outside and you're experiencing nature if you're open to noticing things. So how would you, I guess, describe maybe the responsibility of artists or creators in the urban environment on how to connect people to those things? Because you were talking about it could be designed very intentionally on creating that experience. Well, I think a lot about like the concept of like lenses, right? Literally and metaphorically. So literally, uh, a friend just gave me a hand lens a couple months ago. It's like, just like a 10X lens. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like my world was just like (laughs) changed forever. Um, And I always laugh because like people I know who are like not super into looking at plants, I'll like, I will like gush about this lens and I'm like, man, like everything I look at, like on my block is just so surprising. And they're always like, yeah, okay. Like how surprising could it be? And then I like show it to them and they're like shocked. 
right? And I love it too, because especially in an urban space, right? It's so small. You can literally look at sidewalk moss and it's very fascinating. And then you're like, oh, right, like this is nature. But I think if you sort of take that as more of a, a metaphor, if you give people things to look for, what if you spent the whole day, you know, trying to notice birds? Or you spent the whole day trying to notice really old trees, and then you ask someone to sort of go through their day and just pay attention. That is a f- kind of lens. It's like a filter, right? And, you know, obviously, like, organizing, like, group walks can be really helpful because you have someone who has that filter and they can point out those things. You know, I do a lot of birding alone, but there's a lot of joy in, like, sharing your excitement with someone else. I have this one friend who, if I see a bird for the first time in real life, not in Sibley, <laughs> he is the first person that I text within five minutes, I will text this friend, right? And it's like... A bird buddy. Yeah. That was really big during the pandemic because he lives in San Francisco. I live in Oakland. You know, he and I are obsessed with bush tit nests because they look so weird. They're like around right now, actually. There's like one on the corner of my block. Like we just like, we'll super excitedly text each other whenever one of us sees one. And then we'll like update each other on the progress of the nest. So I think there's something really nice about a group of people who are noticing things together. Yeah, I could totally see that. Now, for the folks that do not know what a bush tit nest looks like, it doesn't look like any normal nest. Not what you would expect. It's kind of this like conglomerate of all sorts of material that are fine from, you know, dryer sheets to lint, twigs and spider webs in this weird, almost like... Uh, how how would I it looks explain? Like a sock. Yeah, I would like say a, it looks like a sock. No, yeah. totally like a sock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like hanging upside down. <laughs> yeah, just the other day I saw one getting some cobwebs from someone's roof. It's like a really good example of something where they're hard to see, but if you're looking for them and you're like you're really looking for them and you really care about them, like you will start seeing them. Yeah, to me, a lot of it was also looking at nature and opening yourself up to nature in this way that we're not judging nature or these spaces. And I think that piece is so hard because if you go check out the Redwoods or you're in Yosemite and you're just struck by the beauty and just this vastness, like how open it is. And then you go back home and like, yeah, I have some trees on my block, but it's not the same we automatically start to judge what is good and what Mm -hmm. is like, what is good nature and what is like, or like real nature. Yeah. Real nature. Right. To me that that's also a lot of being able to understand our attention and how we direct it, but also these other feelings and these thoughts that we have in placing judgment. What would you look at as a practice of non-judgmental observation when when you go out into nature and looking at how to direct your attention. I think sometimes our relationships to the places where we live can be a little bit like if you're in a long-term relationship and you kind of start to take someone for granted, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like um, I think this can happen with anything you're familiar with. It starts to seem like a thing and not a process. And so it's like this task of how can I see the process again? For me, like, you know, my this book that I'm currently working on is about time. So a lot of it has to do with time and change. And I think for me, especially during the pandemic, choosing an area to visit very often 
and trying to be really attentive to change, you know, flowering, but also like, how are these trees doing? Are they healthy? You know, what birds are migrating through here? And just like really kind of unfreeze it in a way where it doesn't feel like a postcard. It feels like a real living place where things are changing. There is a park that I've gone to hundreds of times during the pandemic. I mean, I don't want to know how many times I've been there. I go almost every day. It's like a half an hour walk from here. But I I always visit it with this attitude of like, what is going to be there today? Kind of like, what state are the Buckeye trees going to be in today? Like right now, I'm like, are they flowering yet? Because I'm I'm really obsessed with that smell. So I'm just like waiting for this event, you know? Yeah. You know, like the way the birds interact with them is going to change. And I have some sort of familiarity with those processes, but I can't really predict them. It's an active relationship to something that feels a little bit more like a someone, right? Like that has its own sort of reality and like actions that it produces. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Looking at the seasons and understanding, you know, because I talked to a lot of people about California natives and California native plants go through a process. And if we don't understand that process, if we don't know when they're flowering or the fact that a lot of them are going to dry out and look a little crispy. (laughs) (laughs) And some of them do look like weeds. It's we don't have this relationship with them. And it sounds like what you're doing is being able to go to a place over and over. You're able to see or experience that process. I always tell people like, you know, you have to love the crust of the bread as well. It's like you don't just get to appreciate the flowers or apply this lens that it's supposed to be this way all the time. And when you start to understand that when that flower dries out and the pollinators have done what they do, birds come in to eat those seeds and they start to do what they're doing. Um, so it's a very different inner interaction and understanding. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about your new book? Yeah, I can't get into too much detail because it's not coming out until February 2023. I will say it logically follows How to Do Nothing because there is actually, you know, quite a bit in How to Do Nothing about time. Like this wish that like time would not all seem like money. And I also talk about bird time and bird space, <laughs> especially with migratory birds, but I mean, just really all birds. They'll teach you that like time and space are so intimately connected. And then actually like the separation of time and space is like that's already just a very Western recent sort of construct. You know, like birds look different based on where they are in their migratory journey uh, or they look different, you know, if they're further inland. Like there's all these kinds of entanglements of like time and space. And so the second book is kind of just trying to both talk about uh, ways of realizing the kind of artificiality of like clock time and like calendar time, but also seriously try to think through like the privilege piece of that, which is like, you know, the fact that time seems like money isn't a choice for a lot of people, you know? So it's this kind of like 
trying to both gesture like outside of the clock, but also talk about like what that means for someone to even be able to do that. And how could we make it easier for more people to not have to just live psychologically on clock time so much. I wrote the proposal before the pandemic started. So I was not anticipating things like, you know, people getting really into birding during the pandemic because they're like looking out their window at home. (laughs) You know, I was super stoked that it was one of the recommended tasks because you can keep your distance with people. (laughs) Totally. One of the things that I found when I was researching the like uptick in birding activity was that eBird reports of suburban species were up quite a bit. Okay, there's people who hadn't been looking at birds and now they're looking at birds. But then there were also people who would ordinarily maybe go out of their way to see like, quote unquote, like special, like, you know, species of birds. birds. But now they're, yeah, they're stuck at home. So they're now like looking at like a stellar jay. I don't know, just like this kind of backyard. The backyard birds. birds. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually really love that because it kind of goes back to what I was saying about like taking something for granted. Like to give an example, I've seen, you know, crows on my block for six or seven years now. For the first time ever, a couple weeks ago, I saw like crow mating behavior. And I looked it up and apparently it's like not very commonly seen. I even knew that when I saw it, I was like, something weird is happening here. Like this crow is like wiggling its tail. And then this other crow came over and had like a giant piece of trash in its beak. And it was like wiggling its tail too. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but it seems (laughs) important. Um, And so there's this kind of like, I don't know if you're looking at the same sort of species day after day, like you actually don't feel that you have more of a grasp on sort of like who they are. It's like actually what ends up happening is they become more and more deeply mysterious. Right. It's like you find out so many new things, but then with that, you start having all these extra questions. More questions. Yeah. Yeah. So when we look at this through the urban nature lens, is there anything you would say to to the listeners or any tips that you would want to give in in being able to get to a place where you can appreciate where we are and how to experience those moments? Yeah. One really sort of concrete suggestion is uh, the app iNaturalist, which I don't know if you use that. I but do. I wanted something like that to exist for so long before it came along. I think it's like the most utopian like app that was ever made because, I mean, that's an example of something that's on your phone. You know, you can take pictures of of plants and if you can get a photo of an animal, it also can help you ID those. But I usually use it for plants. Spring is a great time to use it because things are flowering. It makes it easier. Basically, we'll like give you some suggestions and then you can choose one. If you're lucky, like in this area, a lot of people use it. It'll be confirmed or something else will be suggested. And I've noticed that there are certain users that will tend to confirm certain types of plants that I put in there. <laughs> where I'm like, this person just really cares about like Toyon or something. Like if it, just, just sort of people have their like pet plants that they clearly are like watching out for. Definitely. The ones that they're following. Yeah. I mean, I still use that a lot, but I remember, you know, years ago, that was a really big stepping stone for me in terms of just trying to get my bearings. So I think a lot about this idea of like getting your bearings before you even can get really granular. There's kind of a bigger, broader sense, like am I what watershed am I in? You know, what type of desert am I in? Or, you know, just 
a sense of place. Yeah, yeah. There's like lots of great books, you know, about that stuff. But there's also just a lot of amazing just content that you can find online. Like if you're just asking the question to begin with, you will find so much. Jenny, thank you so much for all the time you've spent with us today and just sharing everything uh, that had gone into your book and just your perspective. I, I really value that. And, and I love this idea of remaining teachable throughout these experiences because then you learn so much more. And what's cooler than constantly being able to learn these things over and over again? So I really appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me. Human Nature is hosted by Marcos Trinidad and produced by Carla Javier and me, Caroline Champlin. Kelly Prime is our story editor. Mixing and engineering by Parker McDaniels with help from Sean Corey Campbell. Ex Manana composed our music. Doris Anahi Munoz is the music supervisor. Human Nature is a production of LAS Studios. The marketing team of LAS Studios created our branding with art by Christine Tyler Hill. Special thanks to Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, Neha Sheda, and Fiona Ng. Antonia Serejito and Leo G are the executive producers for LAS Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. That's all for this episode of Human Nature. We'll see you next week. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.